welcome to episode 5 of the Raw is Nitro podcast, the show where we rip up the buy rates and TV ratings and determine our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, and today we carry on in our Raw and Nitro timeline of 1995, travelling forward to October 2nd. Since episode 4, we've only had one major title change across the two federations, that being last week's tag team title win for the Smoking Guns, defeating Yokozuna and Owen Hart. All the other championships stay the same as previously. The WWF are building towards the In Your House pay-per-view Great White North uh, that will be headlined by Diesel and the British Bulldog, and WCW are heading towards their Halloween Havoc pay-per-view. So, as is customary on the show, we flip the coin. This week we got Raw up first, so without any further ado, let's head over onto Raw. to you from Grand Rapids in Michigan, and we open up with a recap of the tag team title situation from last week with the Smoking Guns winning the titles, before hard-cutting to Razor Ramon entering the arena, before hard-cutting back to some more recaps, first Razor Ramon and the Kid, and then one of Bam Bam Bigelow and Lawrence Taylor from WrestleMania, obviously the WrestleMania special I talked about last week, but we're going a million miles a minute here. We do eventually open up and see Vince and Jerry Lawler back on commentary, before once again jumping to recaps, uh, this time of Bret Hart and Jean-Pierre Lafitte, and we're only two minutes in, and that's about the fourth or fifth recap video we've managed to squeeze into two minutes, a really strange opening this week. Razor coming down to the ring does mean that we're going to open up with the Razor Ramon 1-2-3 kid match promised last week. And then we get to the 1-2-3 kid entering the arena and we notice he's got some shiny new black and red tights. Looks pretty cool. Before, geez, going to another recap. This is the fifth already, about three minutes into the show. And this one's about the kid costing Razor the match against Dean Douglas. Once the match does get underway, we get a pretty impressive start with the two men tying up and Razor Ramon from the tie-up managing to throw the 1-2-3 kid over the top rope to the floor. Look pretty impressive. And while he's on the floor, I do notice that the show in general just looks a lot brighter this week. Um, I do notice uh, this is probably the second improvement in production quality across the month in Raw, so I'm guessing feeling the pressure from Nitro and trying to step up their game a little bit. Back inside the ring, and we do have a fast start going on. The kid manages to get himself under control, get his really cool two-kick to the stomach, and then off the second rope, kick to the head combo in one corner before whipping Ramon to the uh, opposite corner and doing his three-kick combo that he'd later be known for as X-Park that set up the Bronco Buster, the two kicks, and then the spin kick. But he's not in control for too long before Razor catches him in a mistake and hits him with a big SOS. We notice that Dean Douglas is once again in the aisleway marking. Um, Not sure what month his report cards come out, because here in Australia that would be roughly school holidays time by now, so he's a little bit late. 
back inside the ring, and 1-2-3-Kid hits his really cool running, dropping leg drops that I love to do whenever I played as X-Park on WWF Attitude on the original PlayStation. If you haven't played it, I strongly suggest checking it out. Probably hasn't dated well, but I still enjoy it. Just as I'm starting to enjoy some of the moves I see, though, out of nowhere, uh, Razor catches the kid with a clothesline and gets him with the pin for the 1-2-3. My jaw just about hit the floor at this point. We get a tight shot of the 1-2-3 kid. It looks like he's arguing with the referee, but the commentators get over that he's actually asking for another match. And without any real introduction from the announcers or anything, we are back underway in a second match. But it's not too long before Razor has him under control again, putting him in an abdominal stretch, and then just slapping him for good measure. Uh, we end up going to an ad break, and when we come back from the ad break, we find out that the kid went for a Hurricane Rana, which Razor uh, countered with a powerbomb and got yet another 1-2-3 that quickly. But the commentators tell us that the kid again asked for another match, and we are back up and running. Razor hits another one of his really cool spots that he always used to do, the back suplex off the ropes, which looks really cool, before signalling for the Razor's Edge. But he changes his mind, doesn't go for the Razor's Edge, picks up the kid, and puts on a small package for his third 1-2-3 of the evening. I really was scratching my head at this point. I'm not sure what they were trying to achieve here. It didn't seem to help anybody. Um... We get back up and Razor gives the kid a good slap before shaking hands with him. The kid goes for a roll-up, but only gets a two-count. So even after being beaten three times in about eight minutes, he can't even shock Razor with a roll-up to get one back. So at this point, I wonder how friendly Razor and the kid were. Obviously, they were both in the click, and we all know the relationship's still going to this day. But I'm not quite sure... Um, what favours they were doing. At this point, um, Razor has made the kid look like more of a bitch than Xavier Woods did Virgil on Twitter. And for some reason, the kid is now asking Razor to give him the Razor's Edge, which he declines. They handshake, and that seems to be it. Next up, we get a rundown of the upcoming In Your House, Great White North. We're told that Diesel will face a British Bulldog, which we found out last week. Dean Douglas will challenge Shawn Michaels for the Intercontinental Championship. The Undertaker will face Mabel. And we now have since learned that Goldust will make his debut against Marty Jannetty. Cool. Up next, we get Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, going against Barry Horowitz, legendary WWF jobber, who had received somewhat of a mini-push earlier in the year, beating Skip in a, in a pretty well-known famous incident, where it was described as his first ever win in professional wrestling. What's doing those... Wait a minute! Oh, look at that! Some Barry chants that I do wonder whether or not they're piped in. They don't sound quite right and don't seem to match up with the video. I might be wrong on that, though. And before any action gets underway, we do get another recap of the Undertaker Mabel British Bulldog angle. And then Vince asks the question, can Horowitz beat Triple H? Before we flash to the back, Triple H stood in the, in the backstage area, just replies with, fat chance. 
we then get a strange commercial for a phone in line. You'll probably all remember the WWF and WCW hotlines that they would shill on their shows trying to get you to call up, pay money to listen to backstage news. Well, this one tops them all. It's an absolute doozy. Phone up and vote on whether or not you think OJ Simpson was innocent or guilty. What is going on in this show? At this point, my note-taking just becomes, what am I watching? It's 50 cents to vote. But I'm sat here watching the show, pondering who in the hell watching Monday Night Raw in 1995 would want to spend money voting on a WWF poll about OJ Simpson's innocence or guilt. Just mind-boggling. Coming back from that, we do have Triple H in the ring, and the match does get underway. Triple H immediately gets off the bat with a really cool-looking armbar takedown. Uh, It's pretty impressive and something I've never seen him do before. Um, The one thing I have seen him do before afterwards, however, is follow up an offensive move with a lovely curtsy. Actually reminded me quite a bit of my daughter when she does dancing or gymnastics. Quite cute. The action continues with some waist lock switches, both going for a suplex or a lift, before Barry Horowitz manages to get the upper hand. As Vince McMahon tells us that last week's Raw was the most watched Raw in the history of the show. Didn't beat Nitro in the ratings, but since this was the most watched Raw and Nitro was still right up there as well, it does start to sound like we're heating up a Monday Night War here. Things are getting interesting. It's not too long into the match before Hunter is back in control, and it does hit a lovely delay vertical suplex, another move that he wasn't really well known for later on, so it was cool to see. Before unloading with some stomps, some chokes, some eye rakes, your general heel offense. Um, Barry goes for a backslide, earns him a two count before going for a big Luthes press, but not with the Austin punches afterwards, actually puts it into a pinning combination, which also gets him a two count. Then he puts an abdominal stretch on Hunter, but not to actually ride the submission out of him. He rolls it into another, another pinning combination, sorry, which gets him another two count. But out of nowhere, we hit we hit the pedigree. Hunter Hearst Helmsley nails Barry Horowitz. One, two, three. That's all. Uh, wasn't really expecting any other outcome. This was a slightly above a squash match. Um, Barry Horowitz got some good offense in. It was backwards and forwards, but it was pretty quick, and there was only really going to be one winner. Uh, Lawler tells us that Triple H learned the pedigree in finishing school. Do love a good pun, so I appreciated that, Jerry, as we go to a commercial break. Coming back from the commercial, we're told we're about to see a new tag team from the hood, PG-13. If you're like me, and mid-90s was a real struggle for you to get a hold of the shows, other than the pay-per-view tapes that the video rental stores would put in, you probably didn't realise that PG-13 were actually anything more than the mouthpieces for the Nation of Domination. That was how I always saw them, but here we've got them in wrestling action against Al Brown and Sonny Rogers, if I'm not mistaken. We didn't really get much of an entrance or much talk about the jobbers. PG-13 consists of Wolfie D and JC Ice, two white rappers pre-Eminem fame. And we see an inset promo in the bottom of the screen where PG-13 are essentially laughing at the smoking guns and calling them out. This match is most definitely a squash because we don't get an entrance or introduction for the jobbers and PG-13 goes straight under the offense. They actually have some good tandem offense. We open up with a really cool Russian leg sweep from one into a drop kick from the other. Um, I was quite impressed by that. And as they're hitting these kicks, I do notice they're both wearing some pretty sick 1990s Charles Barkley Nike shoes. Sneakhead like myself can't help notice these things. Double teams don't stop there as one member hits an inverted atomic drop as the other one bounces off the ropes for a heart attack style clothesline. Wolfie D hits a pretty impressive German suplex, really took him out of his boots, before we see a top rope bulldog and then a double team bulldog. 
And the last double team mat, uh, of the match that brings the win is a really cool tilt-a-whirl on your own partner, slamming them onto the opponent for the 1-2-3. This was actually, this is how you debut a tag team. You give them a couple of jobbers, let them get off their sick tag team moves, really build themselves up strong. This was an enjoyable squash match. Um, from there, we do go to another ad for the OJ phone in line, and it's no less baffling to me second time around. It's really strange. After that, we go to a vignette that starts off showcasing Yoko and Owen Hart before segueing into the fact that it's going to be a big six-man tag next week. Yoko Zuna, Owen Hart, and the British Bulldog up against Shawn Michaels, Diesel, and The Undertaker. Very cool. Definitely will be reviewing that show. Something weird then happens for me. Um, I'd have to get someone else to watch the show and tell me whether it was my network or where, whether it was an error in the original broadcast because we appear to be getting a recap of the Jean-Pierre Lafitte Bret Hart match from the pay-per-view with a slam under the ring steps, but it only lasts a couple of seconds before we go to Jean-Pierre Lafitte's entrance. And if you watch the match later on in the show, the same spot, exact same spot, happens in this match, so I'm not sure if maybe my network just skipped ahead or if there was an error on the broadcast. Before we can get the main event underway, we get another segment of Doc Hendricks with a random girl in the aisleway trying to shill us a t-shirt. This week it's a Brett the Hitman Heart t-shirt, which he assures us is about to stop being made, and he tells us it's $16 plus $3.95 shipping and handling, and he's once again waving the blank tape out the cassette drawer in our faces to tell us we'll get that as a bonus gift. Still doesn't tell us what's on it. From there, we've got the entrance of Brett the Hitman Hart, who comes out to a huge pop. And with the talk last week of him getting a title shot at Survivor Series, no matter who the champion is, and then building him up with some wins on TV again, it looks as though, for the second time in his career, they're priming him to take over from a failed experiment babyface. If you were watching around the time period, Lex Luger was obviously pushed huge in 1993, after Brett had lost the belt to Yokozuna, who traded it back and forth with Hogan. When the Lex experiment didn't go according to plan. They hedged their bets at the 94 Rumble, gave them a joint win to give themselves time to pick who was going to take the title at WrestleMania. They obviously went with Brett in lieu of Lex failing, and this time around it looks as though they're building him back up to take over for the current champion, uh, Diesel, who is re well regarded as the worst drawing champion in history. But we will get there, no rush. And there we get yet another recap. This is really doing my head in for this show. It's just... 10 seconds of action or talking, followed by a recap backwards and forwards. And this time they're recapping SummerSlam 1992 from Wembley Stadium, Bret Hart uh, and the British Bulldog. I have no idea why they need to recap this here, because the Bulldog actually won. Bret's going into this match, not the Bulldog. It does nothing for anyone. When they wrote the script for this show, or edited it in post-production perhaps, they must have been short some minutes to fill the show because this is just odd. Jean-Pierre Lafitte gets on the offense early and for about the tenth time now Vince McMahon describes this match as a demolition derby. He's been doing it ever since the start of the show when they announced that it was going to take place. It's just clicked in my head now that he said it so many times I probably should mention it. Um, we have a good elbow before Jean-Pierre Lafitte takes us to Chinlock City. Brett goes for a comeback, but he's stopped pretty sharply with a back elbow. Jean-Pierre Lafitte goes back to work with Brett trying to fight back on the outside, and then he hits that spot I talked about earlier with the slam on the steps that was in the recap. 
back inside the ring he goes up to the second rope as he is wont to do if you listen to OSW review and hits a pretty cool clothesline and starts pounding on Jean-Pierre Lafitte before Jean-Pierre Lafitte catches him with a slingshot onto the top rope. We have a little bit of a back and forth with the commentary team teasing that Jerry Lawler may get involved in the match before Jean-Pierre Lafitte hits a huge headbutt off the top rope for a two count. Really look cool. As he gets up, the match does slow a little bit, and it's at this time I get to have another look at the fashion on display in 1995 wrestling. So, in addition to wrestling in an eye patch, which I can't imagine is comfortable, really, it seems like a stupid idea, I notice he has a lovely ladies' top with a bit of a frilly bow on the front and some lovely thigh-high boots. If he had the miniskirt, he'd really comp- complete the outfit to go out clubbing on a Saturday night. He is continuing to pound away on Brett, however, and Vince is telling us how surprising it is that he's totally dominating the Hitman. I'm pretty surprised too, Brett hasn't really had any offense. We do get a really good Let's Go Brett chant, so he's obviously building sympathy with the crowd, which is one of his things he did quite well. And he does pull off a small package for a two count, but then he gets back up and gets nailed with a huge clothesline. We come back from a commercial break and Brett's still being dominated, but Jean-Pierre Lafitte goes up to the top rope and misses a leg drop, allowing Brett to get back into the game. Unfortunately, he doesn't capitalize on the opportunity though, and Jean-Pierre Lafitte hits a lovely Tito Santana-style flying forearm. He throws Brett into the steel steps, but back in the ring, Brett unloads pretty much all the five moves of Doom. Not sure if they're in the right order or not, but we get the inverted atomic drop, the clothesline, the gut punch followed by the Russian leg sweep, the backbreaker, and the second rope elbow. Managed to put him away, however, and Jean-Pierre Lafitte hits a lovely rolling senton, picks him up for a Samoan drop, but just flips forward and lands on him. Love that move, takes a lot of skill. He hits a back suplex on Brett, then goes up to the top rope as Lawler's screaming for him to hit the cannonball, but Brett was playing a little bit of possum, jumps up, hits him with a superplex. As he gets back up after hitting the superplex, Brett puts on the sharpshooter and wins it pretty handily. Real John Cena-style booking here if you watch wrestling today where the face gets pounded on all match before popping back up with the win right at the death. As Brett's celebrating on the outside of the ring, Jerry Lawler's throwing a bit of a fit at the commentary table, takes off his crown, takes off his coat, reveals his lovely mullet and dad bod, and starts challenging Brett to go at it right here, right now. Brett does deck him, but before he can unload any further, from out of nowhere we see Isaac Yankum, who hits a huge DDT, or DDS as he calls it, on the floor to Brett. The crowd start chanting for Diesel, hoping for some help, but they're not laying in any more damage, and we see an army of referees and Wurzel, once again of OSW fame, coming down to the ring. And as we're coming to the end of the show, Vince tells us that Gorilla Monsoon phoned up during the ad break after seeing the attack, and Brett will now face Isaac Yankum in a cage in a few weeks' time on Raw. We hear that next week there'll be the six-man tag, and we get the heels doing a promo in the backstage first, just Cornette talking about it, followed by Owen, followed by the Bulldog getting a few words in, and Yokozuna just screams bonsai at the end. We then get the face promo, which was far more bizarre than the heels, where Shawn Michaels talks, then Diesel, then The Undertaker, but Paul Bear is just kind of motioning and pulling faces. You know, he looked like he was dying to bust out with an, ooh, yes, but he never did, and he was really close to Shawn Michaels, which I just find weird. And we end the show with the part of the show and the angle that everyone's been talking about the most. The anticipation has built all night. We find out that of all the fans willing to shill out 50 cents to phone up and vote on the O.J. Simpson case, 49% of them think he's guilty, and 51% of our 1995 Monday Night Raw fans think O.J. didn't do it. Interesting enough, and that's how we close out the show. So without any further ado, we'll head on over to Atlanta and see what WCW's got on offer. 
Nitro comes to us from the Mile High City, Denver, Colorado, and our commentary team are Eric Bischoff, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and Steve Mongo McMichael, who has Pepe with him, who has some sort of crazy eyes on him this week, you know, the eyes that come out on springs or... I can't even think, slinkies, that's the word I'm looking for. And we get off to a pretty interesting start at the commentary booth as the usual banter's taking place. Ric Flair comes out to the commentary table, swipes Eric Bischoff's headset, and proceeds to cut a bit of a promo on Arn Anderson before we go to a recap of the Lex Luger Macho Man situation we've been documenting. During the entrances, Mongo gives us another famous Mongo line, basically saying, if you're not tuned in, you're brain dead. Um, Mongo, I don't think you thought that one through, because if they weren't tuned in, how would they hear you? Therefore, why the hell are you talking to them, mate? The match gets underway with a lockup that goes all around the ring. They're in the collar and elbow tie-up, jockeying for position all over the ring. Um, as Bischoff's telling us that Hulk Hogan will be here this evening, again, smart, get the Hulkster in now that there's a war underway. The tie-up ends up on the outside, so both men go through the ropes while still locked up, and we go to an ad break. When we come back, they're still on the outside of the ring jockeying for position. They're actually both going for a vertical suplex, but neither are able to get the other man up before Lex Luger manoeuvres it into a neckbreaker. They head back inside the ring, where in short order, Randy gets a small package on Lex for a two-count before Luger gets back in control with a huge press slam and some classic Lex Luger shouting. With them both back up, they go into a bit of a backslide struggle. Macho attempts to put a backslide on Lex, who's holding off and blocking it. Uh, he then uses his foot on the rope to block Macho getting him over, before turning Macho and getting a backslide of his own for two. We're not too long into the match before we get a bit of a double tackle head bump spot, and they're both down for a bit of a rest. Getting back up, Macho goes to the top rope, coming off for an axe handle, but Lex Luger blocks it with a punch to the gut. Uh, but not too long after that, the action goes to the outside of the ring, and Randy comes off the top to the outside with the axe handle after all. They both taste some steel while on the outside, with Lex Luger dropped over the guardrail, and Macho Man pushed into the ring post. We get our ref bump back inside the ring, Macho then manages to get the upper hand, goes up to the top rope, hits his flying elbow, and in more classic wrestling logic, sees the referee down from earlier, but still goes for the pin, and acts shocked when he doesn't get a count registered. While the referee is still down, Randy's trying to check on him, but we see the giant coming down the ramp. He gets in and hits a huge choke slam on Randy, which the referee is still two days to see. To some big boos while Mongo rambles on commentary about some 1980s Super Bowl. No idea. Giant gets out of the ring and Lex Luger sort of attempts to deadlift Macho Man into a torture rack from the floor before realising it's nigh on impossible. He then attempts to use the ropes for leverage to lift him with the other arm and realises he can't lift him with one arm any better than he could too. So he gets Savage to sort of lean on the ropes and puts him up in the rack. Um, Savage is still selling that he's unconscious from the choke slam, so the referee lifts his arm three times. And in a rare moment in wrestling, the arm drops the third time and we get the submission victory for Lex Luger. Here we get the classic Disco Inferno music that I played for you last week as the announcers sell surprise that he's coming out because we're meant to be going to Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko. Hell yeah. Uh, Disco just sort of comes out onto the stage and dances a little bit before his music's cut off by Eddie Guerrero's generic music and Eddie comes out and chases him off sort of to the side of the stage before entering for his match. I have to say, in peeking ahead for the shows coming up, I saw the thumbnail on the WWE Network of Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko as the picture of this and I was really looking forward to getting up to it. Um, 
Before the match gets underway, we show some highlights of Eddie beating Jushin Thunder Liger with a frog splash that for some reason Eric Bischoff calls a jackknife. Start the match with some classic Eddie Guerrero D. Malenko chain wrestling. There's a cool bridge in there and a couple of kip-ups. They do get some nice mutual pops from the crowd before going into some more great chain wrestling uh, with a lot of counters and moves that I can't name. Uh, Mongo says something very strange on commentary. I, I really need to just insert this line into the show and stop saying it. He says there's a book called 101 Sex Positions, so how exactly does Dean Malenko get to a 1,000 holds? Eric Bischoff, in pretty quick fashion, says, Don't touch that, Bobby. I will have your microphone cut off. We get a good reversal and dropkick from Dean Malenko before they trade some pinning combinations, and then they cut to the back. You absolute assholes. We've got Hulk Hogan in the back in his neck brace with Jimmy Hart. Really don't care. Not interested whatsoever. Um, he cuts a bit of a promo, but I couldn't take any of it in. I was too busy spitting every swear word I knew to the TV about taking Eddie and Dean away from me. As we cut back to the ring, I notice there's a huge Hulk Hogan mark in the front row. Both huge as in got the red and yellow, the bandana, everything. So huge mark and huge as in size as well. Flipping off the referee or the wrestlers as they're on the ropes and then he starts checking his watch as though he's bored and I just thought you asshole you're the kind of reason why they're cutting to the back for Hulk Hogan in the middle of Eddie Guerrero D. Malenko uh, as I'm scanning the front row and looking at this guy looking to write some abuse on my pad I do notice some awesome mullets and a strange array of outfits in the in the front row as well we go from Hulk Hogan jacket shirt and bandana a couple of rows down a guy in a full suit and then I see quite a lot looking like they've just come from the office business meeting. Interesting. We get Eddie Guerrero body scissoring Dean Malenko over the top rope, which was quite cool, before going up to the very top in the post and doing a huge crossbody block on Dean Malenko in the aisleway. Um, doesn't get anywhere near the reaction it should. There's not really a lot of crowd heat for this, so you can see why they are cutting and panning to their superstars at this point. Uh, we have a good brain buster, um, but Dean gets his legs up on a frog splash back in the ring. They then go into some pin sequences, which Eddie Guerrero manages to just sort of drop down on Dean Malenko, knees on shoulders, arms holding legs, and he gets the one, two, three. Really too quick to be anything special. I was hoping for a lot more. WCW obviously renowned for their cruiserweight division and had recently poached these guys from ECW to put on the classic matches they had over there, and this never really got time to hit those heights. Uh, we do get a tight shot uh, on camera of Dean Malenko offering a handshake to Eddie Guerrero, but telling him he got lucky and he wants another match, to which Eddie agrees and shakes his hand. This only really got about half the time of the opening match, and if I had my way, I'd flip the other two around. Lex and Macho went to a rest spot within two minutes. They really didn't need any longer, especially as it was going to end up an angle anyway. Hulk Hogan and Jimmy Hart come out with Mean Gene waiting for them in the ring to a huge pop. Um, he was obviously still really over at this point. Um, I'll try to stop my loathing on Hulk Hogan from here, but the promo doesn't do me any favours, as in the first 30 seconds, he's hit at least 10 brothers. It's just brother this, brother that, that big stinky giant brother. It gets old pretty quick. It's actually a really poor Hulk Hogan promo, and if you watched him as I did as a kid in the glory years of the late 80s, early 90s. He is capable of a really good promo. It's his matches and it's repetitive booking that bored me, especially his no-selling of finishes before getting the win. But his promos were all really good, so it's disappointing here. He then 
weirdly goes to ringside to start walking around the ring high-fiving and it's here where you're expecting something to happen because it, it's out of the norm and he gets powder thrown in his eyes from an old lady at ringside Gene tells us he actually yells out there's a woman with a cane which was a little bit weird the woman's quite obviously Kevin Sullivan who hops a guardrail and starts to beat Hogan down with some sort of uh, pipe uh, before the giant and an absolute retarded looking Brutus Beefcake come out I know I probably he is probably the Zodiac. I keep forgetting to look up which one he is at this point, but he's just doing this weird walk, pointing his arms in different directions, just doing his best to look like an absolute wanker. The commentators do eventually tell us that the woman is Kevin Sullivan, as if we couldn't figure that one out for ourselves. The giant gets in the ring, takes Hogan's neck brace off, and repeats the next snap move that he did on him at the last pay-per-view uh, in the War Games match. And then Kevin Sullivan gets out a little uh, pocket set of clippers and cuts off Hogan's moustache, which is actually a pretty cool angle. I liked that. Um, the American males come out to try and make the save, but they both eat choke slams. The nasty boys then jog out before both eating choke slams. And in the ring, I see that the beefer has a little pair of scissors in his hands, and I'm thinking, yes, the one thing he did well, let's put a haircut on his best mate. But it just doesn't happen. He kind of just walks away and doesn't cut any. Uh, then we go to that Halloween Havocat I talked about in the last show where Hogan's beating down Vader repeatedly before going to the commercial break. Coming back from the commercial, we're going to Ric Flair and Arn Anderson. Poor Arn's at the jobber entrance. I mean, I don't actually remember any theme music or entrances of his, so they never really stood out, which seems okay. And um, we're told that the American Males vs. Nasty Boys match has been cancelled because of the attack from the Giant earlier. I'm okay with that as well. Nasty's never really had a good match if it didn't involve hitting each other with cup holders and chairs. This match gets us off to a pretty quick start as Arn starts working over the arm of Ric Flair before hitting his uh, throw to the corner where Flair whips over the ropes. But as Arn charges to hit Flair on the apron, Ric Flair pulls down the top rope, low bridging Arn and sending him to the outside. Cool little variation on a spot I've seen a thousand times. I enjoyed that. Flair starts to beat down Arn on the outside and the crowd join along in some good woos uh, before we get a big backdrop on the outside from Arn to Ric Flair. Really look cool. Um, as he's getting up, I notice Flair has a huge lump on his back, like a giant hernia or something. A little bit gross. Um, I know he wore a t-shirt later on in WCW. Might not have been a bad idea here. Uh, we see a sign in the crowd that from the Hulker mark we talked about earlier saying that Arn rules and Ric Flair sucks. Good stuff. Arn hits his lovely spine buster that Triple H would then spend 20 years trying to copy to no avail. I mean, he does it pretty well, but there's nothing like the original, is there? And then Arn goes into a sleeper before Flair reverses that with a back suplex. He locks on the figure floor. Figure floor. Oh, jeez, I say it every week. Why do you even listen? He locks on the figure floor, but it's right next to the rope, so Arn just grabs it pretty quickly. He then rolls to the outside, but Flair goes up top and comes off the top rope. Uh, but Arn manages to hit him with a gut punch as he's flying through the air. He goes for a pile driver, but it's reversed. And then back in the ring, Arn lets out an audible DDT while he's got Flair in the front face lock. But like Flair earlier, it's right next to the rope, so Flair hangs on and lets Arn go down. And in some more wrestling logic, Arn lands the exact same way he would if he hit the DDT, but he didn't hit it, so he's on the floor selling. Ric Flair then locks in the figure four in the centre of the ring. Uh, I'm not sure if Arn calls for the submission or not, uh, because the bell does ring, but it's after Brian Pillman has come out and hit a big splash on Flair. So either he hit it after Arn submitted, or he hit it before, resulting in a disqualification. They then double-team on Flair for a bit. And in the dick move of the week, Eric Bischoff, who 
attack he attacks Bobby Heenan for calling Pillman Pittman. Easy enough mistake to make. They're pretty close names. In fact, so close that in this day and age, Vince wouldn't allow it. Just ask Shane Helms or Garrison Cade. Um, obviously not allowed to keep their first names because there are other people in the company with them already. I digress, getting back to why this is the dick move of the week. Within a minute of chastising Heenan for calling Pillman Pittman, Bischoff immediately goes to call Pillman Pittman himself and does it a couple of times, so pot kettle there, Eric. The show ends in much the same way Raw did, um, with a phone-in message from the commissioner, this time Nick Bockwinkle, sending a message to say that we're going to have Flair versus Arn Anderson in a cage next week. Um, I'm really not sure why WCW, who took such great lengths to mock Raw for being taped, exactly copied the entrance. Surely they knew ahead of time that the ending sequence was going to be Gorilla Monsoon phoning in to say that there would be a cage match, and they've done the same thing, or maybe they only know the match results and didn't know that, but it still seemed really weird that it happened on both shows on the same night. They tell us that next week's show will feature Sting vs. Shark. That's got some cheese value to it for me. Sabu vs. Mr. JL, who some of you may know as Jerry Lynn, so we've got an ECW affair there. And Hawk of the Legion of Doom up against Big Bubba Rogers, who for some reason is dressed as a gangster. I guess that's an all-WWF affair, so it gives us a real mixed bag there for next week. And that ends the show. So from there we go to the results of the of the five categories, and we pick a winner for the night. Okay, coming into the usual five-point rating system, we start off, as always, with match quality. On this evening, I found it really hard to pick a winner, so I have given it a tie right down the middle. Bret Hart and Jean-Pierre Lafitte was okay. Um, Bret probably sold a little bit too long. The Kid and Razor was a series of matches, none of which were excellent, but the moves were good. Had they cut three or four pinfalls out, it could have been something good. Triple H and Horowitz was okay. Uh, PG-13 were actually debuted in a really cool way, which I enjoyed. On the WCW side of things, I just think they got the balance wrong with who they gave time to. Macho and Lex was hot for the crowd, as was Arn Anderson and Flair, which was a good match. Um, but Dean and Eddie didn't get long enough to showcase what they can do. Neither show had a stellar match, but they were both decent enough, so I'm, I'm going with a tie there. We go on to production, um, or presentation, whichever way you want to look at it, and WCW wins again, but it's a lot closer this week. WWF are stepping up their game to try and match characters. I went with the WWF. They managed to showcase all their top stars, Razor Ramon, Shawn Michaels, Diesel, the one, two, three kid, Bret Hart, um, The Undertaker, Owen Hart, Yokozuna, they all got on the show somehow, and we had a good debut for Triple H, really putting him over strong, and PG-13, maybe not the strongest characters in the world, but they didn't have anyone that the crowd didn't care about that wasn't being introduced and built up, as opposed to WCW, they obviously cared about Lex, Macho, Hulk, Arn Anderson, Ric Flair, etc., the Giant, um, but Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, as excited as I was to see it, the crowd could care less, and what you know, visibly bored by it, just because WCW haven't done enough to give them any character whatsoever, and they need to work on that. Storylines, I went with WCW in another close call. Um, Lex and Macho, Hulk and the Giant, Lex and the Dungeon of Doom, is he, isn't he? And Flair Anderson all got some good advancement there, whereas on the WWF side of things, the Kid and Razor got advancement, but it sucked. Brett and Jean-Pierre Lafitte was really a means to an end. It was just putting over Brett for future reference, but it didn't really achieve the job too effectively. We had good promos for next week's six-man tag, but that was it, really.
So for the last category, we go to Crowd Heat. And again, I'm giving WCW the win here, but it was a close call. Um, we got some good Let's Go Brett Chance, who also came out to a nice pop. Razor got a good pop, as always. But they didn't really seem to care about PG-13 or Triple H too much. Whereas WCW, it did load up its stars and get good pops for Lex Luger, Macho Man, Hulk Hogan. Um, good heat for the, the Dungeon of Doom, and some good pops for Flair as well. So a narrow win there, um, which means for the evening, I'm going to have to give the win to WCW. It's been a really good back-and-forth affair so far, the first month of, of Raw and Nitro competing with each other, and I am enjoying seeing just you know the good parts of the product in WCW that I never watched, being the WWF fan. Um, it's produced some pretty good TV for me so far. So that will do it for episode 5. Um, this is the first episode recording with a microphone and some editing software, so I would really appreciate some feedback on the quality of the show. Did you notice a difference? Was it just the same as before? It takes a little bit longer to record this way, so I am interested to hear if it's worthwhile. Um, please let me know on Twitter if you do have any feedback one way or another. The next big show, as mentioned previously will be Bash of the Beach 2000 up against Fully Loaded. That will be another longer episode, so again, want to know whether or not you enjoy it when it comes out. So far, the longest episode has been Royal Rumble and the Bunkhouse Stampede, and it's also been the least listened to, so I'm wondering if that's because of the length or just because of the time period involved. Other than that, I'll do the usual podcast trick of asking if anyone out there is listening to the show, and from my SoundCloud stats page I can see now, people are listening all over the world, which blows my mind. Please do log on to iTunes and give us a five-star review if you think we're worthy of it. Um, it just helps get to, gets us up the charts and gets us noticed, which is what we're looking for. So any help there would be much appreciated. So it's bye for now, and speak to you again shortly. Bring it up hard, shoot through my window So they put me in the back of the car at the station From that point, I'm a reach my destination Where the destination is in the east detention Where I look down my pants, look up my bottom So informer, you know, say that I'm a snowman, I go glam I like it, boom, boom, damn Take the man that says, say that I'm a snowman, stop somewhere down the lane I like it, boom, boom, damn Informer, you know, say that I'm a snowman, I go glam I like it, boom, boom, damn Take the man that says, say that I'm a snowman, stop somewhere down the lane Now me toes just a show up When me a ballin' I don't want your hands so So it's farmer 